0: Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast and something a little different for you today, my guest today. Tristan is the CIO of a company that is very, well, is completely focused on longevity. And this is a, an area in the Bitcoin space that I'm hearing more and more people become interested in. Obviously, it's all linked to diet and low-time preference. And I think Tristan's going to blow a few of your minds. I, I'm not going to give away any spoilers because it's uh, it, it's brilliant. But he, he comes from a financial markets background. So the first part of the interview is talking about working at such institutions as Brevin Howard, the biggest hedge fund at, at that time uh, in the world, and his role there as while he was managing one of their funds, and how that all unraveled for him in, in 2008. And hopefully, that will give you a, a little bit of a picture of what those times were like leading up to that, and you know what it's like to to work in that kind of role. So, I hope you enjoy this one. Before we get into it, I want to give a quick shout out to the usual players. That's uh, at Adam Woodham's one for helping me produce the show. He does all the audio at Sir Badminton, excuse me, at Hodler the now that is Sir Badminton for supplying the music in the background and at Obi, at Coinfloor for your support and trust. Go start stacking stats. If you're in the UK, www.coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. And a big shout out to at play chammery at Scott Sibley, for the great work that you are doing. a Previous guest on the show, go check that interview out. He's supplying free game codes, which I release either in the show notes or in the show thread, or at certain times throughout the day. Sometimes you have to discover the last digit for yourselves. Sometimes I just release the, the full code, which will get you a free game of Shamari to play with your friends and family, especially with Christmas coming up and sitting around and playing a card game is a brilliant, brilliant touch point for everybody to start learning about Bitcoin and and getting that conversation going. So thanks everybody. That's part of this journey. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's show and uh, welcoming today Tristan Edwards. Um, He's the co-founder of Life Biosciences and the chief investment officer there. His his partner in crime is David Sinclair, author of Lifespan. And today we are going to be talking about um, a lot of macro financial stuff because of uh, Tristan's background, but also lots of stuff to do with longevity. Tristan, thanks so much for coming on and uh, taking the time to... uh, educate us around this um well these two subjects today
1: yeah dan thanks for having me it's it's a great be on the show
0: so lauren is here and um last question no well we were talking about this earlier and i said i was going to um interview tristan and we were going to talk about longevity which i find completely fascinating and i know everybody else will once they get to hear about this um, so, yeah, I think I've teed you up quite nicely. Uh, what is the um, long, longevity? longevity. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think it's that. Long, longevity. Yeah. Okay. What, what is longevity? Is a yeah. question? Uh, so longevity is it's really to do with how long different animals live or different... Um, organisms might live, whether it's you're talking about trees or, or animals or humans. Um, different species live for different periods of time. And so when we're talking about longevity, we tend to be talking about how long they live naturally. And in the area we're working in, uh, we're talking about how we can improve the longevity of, of, of humans and animals. And we're not interested in just improving the longevity or the lifespan. We're also... More concerned with improving health span because no one wants to live a longer life if they're not living a healthier life. So often, um, at least when you're talking about longevity science, the focus is more on health span extension. And by extending health span, uh, the, the byproduct of that is an extension of lifespan
0: and improvement in longevity. So, how old do you think you're going to live to, Lauren? Ninety-nine. Ninety-nine. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's quite a high number. Nice. Uh, how old do you think um, I might live to? I don't know. Have you ever heard me say what age I want to live to? Mm, no. No, because I don't have a target. <laughs> I want it to be as long as possible, and I know it would be more than a hundred. But how long do you think Tristan might want to live to? Uh, let's see. A long time. <laughs> Well, Lauren, it's a bit of a
1: trick question, actually. I think um, you need more information. So I've had this question asked and I've heard it asked in many different formats. If you are talking about living the way we currently live and age, then it comes down to what sort of health you hope to be in. I don't think anybody wants to live a long life if they're in bad health. Um, But if you're talking about the future of longevity, where one day possibly humans don't age at all, um, if you're in a constant perpetual state of youth, then... That's a very different question to if you're growing old and
0: continue to grow old. So how does that sound? Always being young. That sounds cool. I mean mommy does want us to stay young. Oh right. Yes. So <laughs> that's <laughs> good, good for mommy, but you know. <laughs> I see We yeah. Like yeah, mommy does get upset when she realizes you're growing up too quickly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Tristan does too, when he turns around and sees his kids are like, whoa, what happened there?
1: Yeah.
0: Right. So do you have any more questions about that? Uh, no. No? I think that's it. Does it sound exciting? Yes. Tristan, what, what do you think would be like uh, kind of a, a throwaway answer to how long somebody might be able to stay in, in uh, good working order? Um, how many years do you think uh, we might be able to? It's, it, it's a fascinating question,
1: and, and you could spend days just in this one question. Um, so I think, I think a good way to catch the answer would be if we, were, if we were speaking in the early 1920s, the average lifespan for humans was 39. And now, that age average is skewed by child mortality, but most humans back then weren't dying from aging diseases. They were dying from infection, and they weren't living long enough by and large, to get aging diseases. I mean, some were but most were not. And then in the late 20s, we we discovered penicillin and antibiotics, and we instantly add 40 years to our lifespan. And the average age is now 79 for humans. But of that 40-year of lifespan increase, only 20 years was helpless health, health span, and the other 20 years was six span. Um, what we're talking about today is adding another 40 years to human lifespan, but of that 40 years increase, getting humans to say 120, 39 of that increase is health span. And we're compressing six span from 20 years down to six to 12 months. We have that technology now. That technology is currently going through various FDA uh, approval processes you know, with our company, uh, with other companies. Um, it, it's a really, really, really interesting time to,
0: to be in the, in the ageing field. Wow. Cool. Yes, very cool. And I'm going to get into that because I've got lots more questions to ask uh, yes, Tristan about this. and I have to you have to go to bed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is very important for anti-aging it, is. it certainly is it, In a few can, can you tell Lauren how much she needs to um, like, look after her sleep patterns sleeping is very important, it's, it's how your brain gets rested and ready for, for the next day, says daddy at 9 o'clock as he's swilling another beer Anyway, big <laughs> guess, I need you to get. I, you need me to get uh, another beer for you. Well, I don't know because, like, I'm going to be talking to Tristan about getting to like uh, hundreds of years of age for, and like, it, half an hour. Yeah, okay, like, for, like two hours. It seems like antithetical to sit here drinking beer while we're talking about this kind of stuff. But um, I don't know. There's <laughs> something we're going to get onto about red wine, which gives me hope. Uh, so uh, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> and chocolate. Say so yeah. goodnight. Bye. Good night. Hi, no, Lauren. Nice to meet you. Let's
1: meet you too. Cheers, mate. Um, it's got the hard, they've got the hard questions out of the way earlier. I like that.
0: Exactly. Exactly. We, uh, we, we we like to go in hard and, uh, and make sure we've got you guys on your toes. Uh, <laughs> although the, the, the most common tweet at the moment about my show is how – how much I need to shut up and let Lauren speak more, and uh, <laughs> she, she steals the show. And and her part of the show is always the best part. So, uh, thanks, listeners. I uh, appreciate the vote of confidence. Um, so, Tristan, I'll go back. We will come back to the lifespan stuff, guys. Um, the um, and uh, the life sciences and all of that because that is really, really incredible. But I think it's like looking at your background as well. The listeners are going uh, to get and connect to, to uh, you know um, a lot of what you've got to say about um, your previous career in in finance and um, well in the, in the hedge fund world and the banking world and um, markets uh, which which we all love in the Bitcoin space learning about especially with what's going on right now and people are sitting there looking at the um, the stock market trying to figure out how uh, you know with unemployment all time highs how on earth is this, you know, happening? Um, so could you just give us a a little bit of a a background of, um, of how you found yourself, um, in that, in that business in the first place?
1: Sure. Um, I think it was really just case exposure. Um, I was always very interested in, in that sort of, uh, I guess, front office environment, um, I started out at Goldman Sachs as a graduate after university. Uh, Actually, my first job was with the Department of Finance in Australia. I grew up in Australia uh, doing the national budget, but I moved from finance to to Goldman um, after a couple of years and started out on the institutional desk trading Australian equities. Um, After a couple of years there, learning how how to trade the markets, I was moved to GSAM, which is the asset management team at Goldman. I uh, joined there as a, as the equity trader for the fund, but also as a small caps analyst. Um, and Gsam in Australia at the time was a was the pension fund, not a hedge fund, so a more conservative approach to investing, which in Australia primarily means bottom up uh, DCF, discounted cash flow modelling. It's a very um, labour intensive, uh, very detail orientated um, thorough analysis of companies from the from the bottom up, not top down macro analysis. Um, i was gone government for five years uh my wife and i left australia moved to london um, and i was looking to move into hedge funds i was looking to move into a more of a macro environment i, I guess i describe myself as a big picture uh person i'm, I'm not a details person and so i really had, had a sense that i was better suited to um kind of top-down macro analysis shorter time shorter investment time frames rather than the longer uh duration pension fund type time frames And I was lucky enough to get a job with Brevin Howard, which at the time was a $2 billion fund. Um, They just left uh, Canary Wharf and moved to Mayfair. And I joined running their trading desk. So I was an equity guy, but this was a macro fund. So they're doing mostly fixed income and FX. They weren't really doing much by way of equities. I think they planned to grow that part of the business out, um, but it took a little longer than they thought uh, to get the equity side going. So I was trading everything but equities, which was really interesting to me at the time. Um, Brevin's a very impressive organization like they're doing some really really interesting things um, and in the three years I was there their assets under management grew from 20 from 2 billion to 25 billion so they became the largest hedge fund in Europe in, in that period of time um, so I just saw an insane amount of growth both in terms of um, portfolio managers joining um, the risk and compliance being built out um, and all being done in a very top-tier way so yeah, you know, it was a fascinating environment to be in and, and, and to cut your teeth on as a, as a young trader um, but at some point, I guess you get sick of being a generalist, knowing a little bit about everything, but not much about anything. And I'd had a good exposure to the whole, I guess, spectrum of markets, but I wanted to go back to to what I was more interested in, which was equities. Um, I think the thing that I got most from Brevin Dan was I'd come from this environment where we were doing bond DCF analysis, which I did not enjoy that much, to be honest. Um, and I was kind of you kind of told at that time, if you're in that pension fund environment, that bottom-up DCF is the only way to really analyze stocks properly and anything else is second tier. And I just didn't think that was that could be true. And I'd go to this environment like Brevin Howard where you've got every type of trader, every asset class, every time frame you can imagine all under one roof. And I had exposed all this uh, in a very compressed period of time. And I rec- recognized that there is no one best method of running money. Like I really do believe strongly that all approaches are equally valid. Whether it's simple or complicated, it, it doesn't really matter. I think what really matters the most is having a fit between your personality type and the type of process that you're running, and I think this is the part that a lot of um, people running money don't get the chance to to explore because it's hard enough to get a job as a portfolio manager, and when, if you do get a job for a fund, you've got to adopt the mandate that they're running. You, you don't really have the luxury to kind of create your own system or, or style. And I think you know I think it's it's important to have that fit between process and personality because. Um, you know, I used to say making money is easy, but losing money is even easier. And so when you are losing money, if you don't really understand your process or know why you're in your trades, you'll find it very hard to have the conviction to stay in those trades or to cut when you're supposed to cut or write out, you know, the areas you're supposed to write out. And you'll be, you'll be shaking out of loose trades with no conviction. But if you really understand your process and believe in your process, regardless of what that process is, um, you'll have the conviction to deal with your losses in a much more systematic way, in a much more consistent way. And I think that's the secret to trading. I think the secret to trading is being good at losing money um, and, you know, being good at being emotionally emotionally disconnected from the PL. It's very hard to be emotionally disconnected from your PL if you don't really understand the process or believe in the process that you're that you're running. So that was a big big takeaway from Brevin. Um, I left Brevin after three years and joined a, a small equity fund called Trafalgar Capital. Um, they're a great little shop uh, in Mayfair also, Um and I think one of the things I loved about Trafalgar was the style they were running was one that very much suited my personality and very much suited the style that I was kind of forming at Brevin. Um, I was, I joined them as the Asian portfolio manager trading Asian cash equities. It was mostly Japanese and Australian equities, but also doing some of the emerging markets as well, such as ASEAN, uh, South Korea, Hong Kong. And I was, so I was trading Asia from London. So I was working nights. Um, you know, I had, I had four really good years at, at Trafalgar. Um, my last year, my boss, sent me out to Hong Kong to study his Hong Kong office, um, which I did in 2010. Um, and at which point I'd always wanted to, to have my own fund. I, I'm quite entrepreneurial. Um, and I, I had four good years in 07, 08, 09 and 10. And a lot of my peers didn't perform in 08 and 09 back to back. Uh, so that was a good time for me to differentiate myself and, and to go out and, and raise money to start my own fund, which is what I did. Um, I moved my family to Singapore. Set up a fund in 2012. Raised 100 million dollars for that fund. Um, I think I was the only person in Asia in 2012 to have 100 million dollars committed pre-launch. Um, in Asia, that's that's quite a lot of money to move around because the market's are not as liquid there as they are in the Europe, in Europe or in the US. Um, and so I was in Singapore for maybe four years. And to be honest, I think I just got burnt out. I've been a short-term trader for 16 odd years. Um, I think after 08 too, it, things just got very different for me. Um, you know, I had a lot of problems with how, how, how 08 happened lack of transparency, lack of accountability, you know, the whole thing was just, it was just hard to watch and hard to be a part of. Um, so I moved back to Australia, shut my fund down, had a break from trading, just unplugged completely from the markets for a couple of years. Started doing some venture capital consulting kind of on the side because it, it was an easy skill set to fall into. It was quite similar to my hedge fund background. Um, and that, from there, I kind of moved into longevity. I've um, always had a genuine interest in the idea of, aging research and and the idea that we can buy, hack our age one day, I guess I'd describe myself as an internal optimist. Like I really do believe that anything is possible. And I thought with my experiences setting up payment structures, dealing with government regulatory bodies, raising large amounts of money, you know, putting together risk and compliance and ops, um, if the aging science is advanced enough, I can make aging an asset class and I can raise money to invest in longevity. Um, That's exactly what I did.
0: Mate, that's um – that's a great, uh, a great background. Thank you very much. And there's, there's a couple of nuggets that I, I want to come back to if, if possible. And right at the beginning, actually, um, your, your first, your first role, um, national budget, you said, yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. in Canberra, the so Canberra is the capital of Australia. Um, <laughs> department finance is, is one of the three key agencies there. Um, and their main function is the national budget. Um, you know, it's it, it was a really, really cool environment for a person to jump into straight out of university, you know, just left home, out on your own, um, interesting policy work, um, you know, kind of flexible hours and that, you know, it's not like banking where you don't have that much of a social life. You know, you, you do get that work-life balance quite nicely in the public service. And, you know, it's meaningful work. You feel good about the stuff you're doing. You, you're making a your real... Um, you know, difference in, in, in terms of the, the way the country is operating, the way it allocates its its, its tax base.
0: It, and, I mean, like seeing that, like you, you must have been – you must obviously have had some kind of uh, personal thoughts about, okay, that seems like a great project, that needs funding, or you're happy to see you probably didn't have to sign off. Um, that's, you know, that looks like a great thing to do. But on the other side, the flip side, there must have been stuff as well where you're just thinking like, that's just – that's a that's a malinvestment and that's not <laughs> it's
1: quite it's quite funny. I didn't realise at the time how similar that process was to equity capital markets and the book build you see with IPOs and secondary offerings. Uh, and by that I mean if it's a hot deal, everyone quadruples and inflates their real demand knowing they'll get scaled back and the bankers scale everyone back knowing that's not their real demand. Uh, you still the same sort of thing with the line agencies. So the line agencies would have their various projects they wanted to fund for the next, you know, one three years. They put their proposals in. An agency might have X of, of capacity historically that's allocated to them, so they'll put in proposals for three times that amount, knowing they're going to get scaled back. And they'll they'll try and list their projects by uh, order of importance to them, to the line agency. And then on the on the other hand, you've got the minister's requirements. Uh, so the minister of finance and the incumbent government has their own requirements in terms of what they want to fund. Um, to satisfy election promises and, and, and a greater strategy they might have that, that you're not seeing at the department. So there's constant tension between what the line agencies want uh, their budgets spent on and how much they want allocated to them with what the government in, in, in question wants to allocate its resources to and the projects it wants to fund and just trying to make those two things marry up as best as possible and also be a good, you know, custodian of, of the taxpayer dollar and make sure that the money that's being spent is being spent as effectively as possible with minimum latency.
0: Yeah. And like now, now when you look at it and you look at the national debts around the world and you, you cast your memory back to like, whatever that was like 25 years ago, um, you know, having been inside the walls and seeing the process and seeing, you know, um, how, how this is going down, what, do, do you get angry or you're like, you understand this is like the nature of the beast or, you know, how, how does that sit? Well,
1: it's neither Dan. Um, I don't get angry. Um, it can be, can be kind of frustrating to, to watch just monetary bases being doubled all the time. And, and I mean, it's not the nature of the beast. It is now, I guess in this new paradigm, um, of quantitative easing, but it certainly wasn't the nature of the beast, you know, 10, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. um, And that's, I think, one of the things that made the market so hard post 08. You know, one of the things you you just cannot study in economics is random central bank intervention. I mean, that sort of thing doesn't happen in a normal cycle, and you can't study for that. You can't predict it. So that makes it hard to trade. It makes it hard to use uh, macro, micro economic policy to try and work out what's going on when you have these strange uh, outliers, such as just printing money without any warning, just dropping in left, front, and center. I don't know. It's hard. I mean, this is a. It's going to be interesting to be, I think, an economic student in twenty years' time when you kind of get through this global financial crisis hangover um, and get back to some sort of normality and probably more regulation, just to see how this whole period evolved and and what people say about it when they critique the way it evolved and the, the successes and failures that we had along the way.
0: Yeah, and uh, the the other thing I noted that I wanted to speak to you about was um, when you said. Um, looking back oh eight, oh nine, 09 probably had uh, more of an effect on you than, than you realized probably at the time with like the lack of transparency and what was going on. Um, you know, I, I was in my foreign exchange broking job at that point as well. And, you know, I, I feel the same too, looking back, like you like, you know, at that time you just got up, you got into your desk as soon as you could, you stayed as many hours and then you, you just re- rinsed and repeat like, um, for months just to try and get through it. Um, yeah, I mean, looking back now and, uh, and seeing, yeah, how, how do you
1: reflect on that? That's a really interesting question um, because of the way I feel about it, I think. I remember the time, you know, I was sitting in Mayfair, and look, I didn't see it coming, but people much smarter than me did, but I was reading their research before most people could, could consume it and have it available for consumption, and most people didn't even see a lot of this research was being written. And I, mean, I was smart enough to understand at least what it meant when I, when I saw it. Um, and you'd be amazed how I many people today really have no idea how close we came to a Mad Max scenario that we never would have rebooted booted from. Like we almost lost fear currency. We almost lost gold standard. We almost lost the, no, the notion of insurance. Um, and a good analogy I think is it's like you're in the Titanic and everyone's asleep and someone sees the iceberg and starts ringing the bell and yelling for life rafts. People kind of half wake up, they ignore the person. The Titanic misses the iceberg by like a millimeter. And the next morning they're pulling into New York and they're all asking questions over breakfast. Who was that guy ringing the bell, freaking out for no reason. with no idea how close they came to all drowning in the Atlantic ocean. Like that's what happened with the global financial crisis. We almost drowned in the Atlantic ocean and we missed the iceberg by a millimeter and none has any idea that it always happened really. They, they think it was overblown, overdone and overreaction and everything was fine in the end, but you know, we only just managed to save it. And if we had a lost gold standard fiat currency notion of insurance, the thin veneer of public law and order is actually very, very thin. And you see that with with the London riots and you see that with things going on today. Um, society wouldn't have rebooted from that. And, and ironically socialism saved capitalism. You know, we, we printed money like we never printed before. And the taxpayer picked up the bill We nationalized all our assets and it was literally socialism saving capitalism. And that's never spoken about. And I think that's interesting. I think that's something that people should think about more.
0: Yeah, man. We got, we've we got to carry on our conversation about Bitcoin when uh, because <laughs> there's a rabbit hole. We've <laughs> <laughs> not entered it yet, but uh, <laughs> we, will, uh, we will get there. But um, we will move on to um, what I wanted to talk to you about and uh, the longevity piece because uh, there are many people um, in the Bitcoin space that have um, started looking into this and um, wondering more and more about it. And it, it is a... Uh, a fundamental kind of like uh, mind shift within um, within the space where people, as soon as they start um, investing in Bitcoin and interacting with Bitcoin, it lowers their time preference and they start making um, sounder decisions around their health, around um, their jobs, around their relationships, around everything. Um, it's an openly discussed um, part of the, uh, the ecosystem. Um, so how on earth then did you... End up becoming um, like a uh, co-founder and chief investment officer for um, Life Biosciences, and working alongside David Sinclair, because uh, that's uh- yeah.
1: I think it's it's a, I mean you know it's I think a lot of it was, was luck and timing to be honest, Dan. Uh, you know I've got a lot of friends in the markets who are always very keen to have a thing on the pulse of what the next uh, thematic success thematic might look like, and I've had a bunch of them ask me how I got into this longevity trend so early before everyone else saw it. And the honest truth is I was just lucky. I wasn't trying to jump on a trend. I was just doing something I really wanted to do. Um, I really did think I'd spend five to seven years in the wilderness trying to raise awareness around longevity, and it all came together very quickly. Uh, So as I said earlier, I I thought I really did believe that if the science was advanced enough, I could make aging an asset class. And I researched the science in early 2016, and this is at a time when most non-scientists thought the idea of altering your longevity was science fiction. Um, I was really encouraged by the animal data I find that was publicly available. Um, so I thought, yeah, this is interesting. I'm pretty sure I can, I can raise money around this, this, this science. So then I started researching who the best people were. And, you know, there aren't a lot of people in the field. It's such a new area. Um, it takes a certain amount of dedication to spend 20 years studying yeast cells with no idea if you'd actually, actually ever see the fruits of your labour or just be shoulders so that somebody else would stand on one day. So there really are only probably 20 people in the world who, who kind of went through that journey. Um, and, you know, David Sinclair, you know, stood out as one, one of the leaders. You know, he and Nia Basilei, who's another, another good friend and also part of our, our group, um, you know, really, really kind of stood out as, as being, I guess, at the forefront of, of this of this space. Um, so I just reached out to David and I was lucky in that it was at a time when there weren't that many people like me trying to reach out to him. I think if I tried to get a hold of him now, I'd find it very hard to get past his gatekeepers. But, but back then, you know, he was at Harvard doing his thing and, he didn't have a lot of attention from the, from the VC type world because it wasn't still early and it wasn't obvious that it was about to kind of break out and become mainstream. Um, so, you know, I called him up and we, t- we exchanged emails and, you know, we, we set a time for a call and we're speaking for maybe an hour and a half or so. I was in, in Brisbane, Australia. He was in Harvard and, um, you know, we got him really well. We had a real meeting of minds in, in terms of what we wanted to do in our long term <clears throat> outlook uh, and, and our genuine desire for long term outcomes. Um, and he said, well, Tristan, this all sounds really interesting. I think your background sounds really interesting. Um, you know, you, you, you kind of, your vision for what you want to do with this space sounds really interesting. Next time you're in Boston, I'd love to meet up for a coffee and, and learn more about, you know, what, what your ideas are and your timeframes and things. And while he was talking to me, I was on the Qantas website looking at flights from, from Australia to Boston. And I said, well, what are you doing tomorrow? And he said, I'm just at Harvard teaching. Why? I said, well, I can be there at 11 for a meeting. Can I see you then? He said, yeah, you can, but aren't you in Australia? I said, I am, but there's a plane leaving in a few hours. If I, if I leave now, I, I can make it, and I'll be able to see you tomorrow at 11. And I think he thought I was joking, but he said, okay, he to the meeting, and then um, I grabbed my passport, I didn't pack a bag, told my wife I was going to Boston to see a longevity science at Harvard, and i would never mentioned any of this to her before. <laughs> I don't know what she thought I was really up to. Um, but I, I jumped on the plane, flew 25 hours, had a three-hour meeting, flew 25 hours home again. And I, I like the joke I've got five children, I think as, as I told you, but I like the joke that flying fifty hours for a three hour meetings is still infinitely easier than taking five kids from Sydney to Melbourne on a plane, so it actually actually wasn't that big a deal at all um, but the jokes the jokes aside look david he's a fantastic guy, and you yeah, we 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 had a really real meet, a genuine meeting of the minds and I think what impressed him what impressed him about me other than my ability to jump on planes at a moment's notice was um I had a genuine lens and passion for long term outcomes. I really wanted to, to affect, uh, have an impact on aging. We, you could tell that nothing about this was about trying to make a quick buck. Um, in fact, it was the opposite. I, I, as I said, I did really think I'd spend quite a bit of time in the wilderness just trying to raise awareness. Um, and, you know, the, the two things that were really surprised me when I met David were one, his non public science is way more advanced than his public science. The stuff that he's doing that isn't yet available for public consumption is incredibly exciting um and so i was very encouraged i thought yeah we can definitely raise money around this this is this is awesome um and two i was really surprised how much time he and his peers spend writing grants for small amounts of money you know four hundred thousand dollars shapes here eight hundred thousand dollars shapes there and i just come from this perverse environment where you could drop four hundred thousand dollars in a trading era and you wouldn't think twice about it and he's a guy who's trying to really have a genuine impact on the health span of our species and he's got to spend literally half his time trying to pull funding together and so I just thought that's backwards. Uh, I need to help. I get solve this. So I committed to to raise large amounts of long duration money. And and the long duration part is important, Dan, because I think look every every kind of investor has its place. Um, but I think if you really are pursuing long term outcomes, you need to have long duration money. If you're focusing short term profit, you with innovation. And it's almost impossible, I think, to do the sort of work we're doing if you're constantly being forced to, to throw up short term widgets that give liquidity events. So I think you really need investors who are supportive of, of the long-term mission and, and, and encourage you to make mistakes and, and take that long-term lens and that long-term outlook. Um, and that's what we did. You know, we were fortunate to pull um, investors together who, who had that um, that genuine belief and long-term outlook. And I, I can't think of any um, company or, or subject matter I've seen before where you've got a genuine alignment between investors, management and scientists. And when you do have that gene alignment, I mean, you know, we have got a very interesting subject matter. It's longevity. It affects everybody. So I think that's how you, you've achieved it. But it just creates a, a really wonderful um, atmosphere. Having that, that mandate that everyone's on board to just innovate and, and take a long-term view to innovate, um, I don't know, it, it, it's special and it's rare
0: and, and I, think it's, I think it's awesome. How do you go finding those those companies? Because it's so difficult um, not, not, not the companies. Sorry, the uh, the funders, the the backers. Because yeah, in this you know, in this day and age, it's all about you know, a venture capitalist comes in and all, they've got their eye on the exit. Like you know, Silicon Valley. Right. Um, that's all they want. They want you know, right. you know, if they're if they're in the, in the first round, they want to know. In the second round, is that our exit? In the third round, is our you know, when is our exit? But how do you then? It, that must have taken some time to find the right people to back, it to back you. It did take some time, and it took a bit longer than I thought, to be honest. I mean, I, I'm an internal optimist, so I'm I'm still surprised.
1: I'm still surprised my timeframes don't play out. Um, but, yeah, it did take some time. Uh, I mean, I was focusing on, on family offices and high net worths. I mean, the idea of longevity science has an intrinsic value that's not fiscal, right? I mean, it's just the idea of being able to somehow impact your own health span by investing in the science, I think is appealing to some people, but it's not really that appealing to institutions because they can't access longevity. Um, so we're really focusing on, on people who would be interested in either the fiscal element because, you know, the asymmetric risk here is, is, is huge, but also the, the non-fiscal element, which is the subject matter of longevity itself. Um, and I wonder, it's interesting, you know, when it went into this thinking that, you know, billionaires in their, I guess, 60s, 70s, maybe even their 80s, we be most interested in this stuff because they're the ones who, I guess, who are, who are more acutely aware of their own mortality. Um, and uh, the millennials who have made money in areas like Bitcoin are probably less interested because, you know, they're bulletproof, they're young, they don't care about ageing it yet. They can worry about that in 50 years' time. But ironically, it's actually the other way around. I found the um, the baby boomer generation, and I'm generalising here, because i have found some some incredible investors from all generations but by and large the baby boom generation was was more skeptical of the science um, they probably they probably see hair schemes all the time and, and, a, and a bit more um you know wary of, of this sort of thing but and maybe they just thought that the science wouldn't be ready early enough to help them but i found the baby boom generation more reluctant to to get on board this sort of vision and this sort of movement and I found the millennials were just banging up for it. And I guess that's because looking back at the, the whole experience, they've been raised on a diet of you know, homo sapiens and, um, sorry, homo deus and sapiens, whereas uh, all the other generations are kind of a bit more conservative in that respect. And I think the millennials had the mindset of, of course, aging science is possible. Why haven't you done it yet? Like It should have been done by now. And maybe there's an element too, that they've got enough time to wait for it to work and they believe it will work one day. So let's get behind it and start supporting it. So I thought that was interesting.
0: Yeah. That is
1: interesting. Yeah, but, but, you, you, but you know, I, I mean as, as as you de-risk as a company too, you know, you got the risk curve and, and you start raising large amounts of money, which we're doing now, um, you become more institutional, you you become less risky, um, and you know, the the invested demographic widens substantially and you start having institutions looking at you, you start having sovereign funds looking at you, you start having um, you know, even BC funds looking at you. And it becomes less about the kind of early stage intrinsic value of longevity and more about this is real science now and, and it's got huge applications in all areas of, of health and, and medicine.
0: And am I right in thinking that you guys look at, as, uh, uh, as, you know, define ageing as a disease?
1: Good question. Um, you have to be careful how you talk about this because it, you, you don't want to come across seeming ageist. Um But ultimately, yeah, I mean, no country currently recognises ageing as as a disease. The World Health Organisation recently classified ageing as as a disease, but no country yet does. And the implications of this are you can't make drugs for ageing if it's not a disease. And so we're making drugs for ageing. We just can't say we're making drugs for ageing. We have to to make drugs for the symptoms of ageing. And I actually really do believe that we're the world's first genuine healthcare company. All the other biotechs and, and pharma companies out there are sick care companies. They wait till you get sick and they try and work out medicines to make you better once you are sick in a very reactive way. And they're treating symptoms, not causes. And, you know, that's not a criticism. It hasn't been possible until now to, to go upstream and treat causes of aging. But now we can literally treat causes of aging. When you treat causes of aging, you can treat multiple downstream symptoms collectively. I mean, it just makes intuitive sense. And, and it's in a pre, uh, preventative way. So it's genuine healthcare. Um and so you know we've got aging drugs that we're working on that treat upstream causes, and take care of multiple downstream symptoms. And traditionally, a biotech making a drug for a downstream symptom, if its drug fails, it can't pivot and repurpose that drug for another disease state. Well, that's it. That's that's a shot on gold done, and it goes to zero, and you start again. But if you're treating upstream causes with multiple downstream disease states you can target, if you have any problems with one disease state, you can easily pivot the same molecule into other disease states. So it's it's a very de risk model for biotech from what you've seen, I guess, uh, traditionally before.
0: And do you get, like, huge pushback from, like, the, the Glaxo's and the Defizers the and the, the Roaches and, and whatever else, you know, because it seems to me like you're, you're coming in and disrupting a classic startup kind of style come in and disrupt the system that is so process driven so regulated so you know set in stone and you guys are new on the block and like we can turn this on its head and make it way more efficient and you know benefit way more people
1: i think the answer is no we haven't yet um i think it's good in some ways that we do have to target downstream symptoms, at least from a, a marketing FDA point of view because, you know, NASH has such an, a large unmet need. You know, Pharma's interested in that. If you can treat NASH by going upstream and treating the causes of, of, of metabolism, they're interested in that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure there'll be powerful lobby groups that are resistant to change just like they are in any, any industry. But, you know, if you look at like the, the, the long-term struggle between renewables and... and, and um, carbon energy. You know, at some point that will tip. It's already starting to tip. And I guess the petroleum companies who think they're petroleum companies won't be around in twenty years' time. But the petroleum companies who think they're energy companies, they'll thrive and they'll pivot and they'll and they'll succeed as as the energy space evolves. And I suspect you will see the same with pharma. Pharma companies who think they're in the illness business or the sick care business, so they won't be around in twenty years. But the pharma companies realize that they're actually in the healthcare business. They should embrace embrace these changes. And I think the governments will embrace these changes because the first time in our species history, the number of five-year-olds is less than the number of 65-year-olds. And so if you fast forward 20 years, and this goes back, I guess, to my time at at finance doing the budget, you fast forward 20 years, those 25-year-olds providing a tax base to support the number of now 85-year-olds, that inverted pyramid is just going to collapse on itself. We are already in a a period where, you know, NHS, Medicare, et cetera, they're all underfunded and they're struggling. Um, You add add this, this demographic situation to that, that, stressed system, and it's going to cause real problems. And now if you consider that 95% of your healthcare spend in your lifetime will be in your last three years fighting AIDS disease, we can now remove that spend. So that's 95% of a healthcare budget we can free up and use in other areas of, of tax reform, You know, whether it's social security, whether it's education, whatever it might be. Um, so the fact that governments need a real, a real paradigm shift to save their underfunded healthcare systems and they're facing down the barrel of a twenty year demographic change is going to make them collapse on themselves. This is exactly what they need to to fix that problem. I can't think of any else that will fix that problem.
0: Right. Let's get into some of the science. Uh, I know you can't talk about probably 90% of the stuff that uh, that you're working on (laughs) behind the scenes, but obviously the publicly um, available knowledge and, uh, you know, David Sinclair has been on uh, lots of TV shows and and podcasts and, uh, you know, there's lots of stuff in his book, which people I'm sure might have already heard of him and read his book or listened to some podcasts. I've been listening to a few, um, you know, getting ready for this interview and some of the stuff, man, is just like, you know, mind blowing. So, um, And we spoke about before the, um, restoring sight um, uh, within, um, like the optic nerves of, of mice. Um, I mean, what, like, what the hell, like, you know, this is,
1: yeah. So this is, um, I, I, I can talk about things that David's already spoken about in his book in broad terms, um, which I think is interesting enough. Um, So, so we have eight aging pathways, eight ways you grow old. The Europeans, I think define nine, the Americans define seven. We all agree on the landscape. It's just semantics and how you slice it up. And our original mission was to take care of all of those eight aging pathways. And in doing so, you should live a much longer, healthier life. And that's, that's still our our core mission. But then you're you're still growing old. You're just growing old in a very healthy way with no age disease. So you you should get to 120 and be in perfect health. Um, you yeah, which is great. I mean, who doesn't want that? Um, but then above it all, David had the, the theory, this master pathway of ageing where a good analogy that, he, that he, I've heard him use before, and I think he uses this in his book, is imagine a compact disc, like a CD that holds music. You take the disc out and you start using it. And as you start using it, it starts to develop scratches. And as it starts to develop scratches, it's harder for the reader to read the CD and the music starts skipping until eventually you can't play any music at all. But... All the music's still on the disk. The information hasn't been lost or damaged, it's just hidden, buried under these scratches. And if you can just polish the scratches out of the CD, then the reader can read the information again. And you can play music like the CD is new. So David's theory was that your genome is is the same, as the same, uh, I guess, properties as, as the disk, and your epigenome is the reader of that information. So your cellular identity sits at the genome level, and your epigenome reads that cellular identity. And as you go through life, you know your DNA snapping every day and rehealing, you accumulate damage at the genome level. Um, so ke- keep in mind, ageing is just an accumulation of damage. That's all ageing is. It's just an accumulation of damage. And youth is just an absence of damage. That's all youth is. You know, We're not trying to make our animals younger. We're trying to make our animals undamaged. And in doing so, they become young. Um, so your genome starts out without any damage and your epigenome reads it correctly and you are undamaged. You're young. And then as you go through... Your life, you start to accumulate damage at the genome level and it becomes harder for the epigenome to read the cellular information correctly. And that's, start, that's the aging process. You start to become damaged. Um, until eventually your genome is so buried under damage that the epigenome can't read the information and your cells lose their identity completely and your skin cells start acting like liver cells. Um, so the idea was, if we could just remove the damage from the genome, all the cellular information is still there. It hasn't been lost or damaged. It's just, it just can't be read correctly. So remove the damage from the genome, let the epigenome read the cells correctly, and your, your body should revert to an undamaged state, which is what we know as youth. And he actually did this, you know, he did this in Harvard um, 12, 1218 months ago, uh, in a mouse's optic nerve. It's incredible. And it's been re- the test has been repeated independently. Um, you know, you can, we can crush an optic nerve of a mouse. This is in an aged animal. The mouse goes blind, obviously, because we just crushed its optic nerve. Um, we inject dye into the eyeballs, we can see what's going on with the optic nerve, and, and you can see all the uh, all the pathways that used to be lit up like fire, uh, dying as the crashed optic nerve dies. And then using three of the four Yamanaka factors, so Yakinama one Japanese scientist, won the Nobel Prize in 2012 for discovering the four um, factors that control stem cells. Using three of these four factors, we can reprogram, like genetically reprogram. The crush point to be undamaged. We can remove the damage from the mouse's genome of the optic nerve, and when you do so, the nerve uncrushes, the cells regenerate as young as as undamaged young cells, and the mouse can see again. It's 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 just nothing short of amazing. I mean, yeah, it should work in spinal cord injuries, I imagine too, in theory, at least fresh spinal cord injuries. Um, if we do it to the whole mouse, you know, it gets cancer, goes go stem cells, and, and it di- and it dies. So we can't control it in the whole organism, but the optic nerve is a contained system, so it's a great place to kind of play around with this sort of tech. Um, so we'll be treating glaucoma and the degeneration, uh, hopefully, in the coming years. And once you get this stuff working in one organ, then you start focusing on other organs. And, you know, I mean, you, can use your own imagin- you can use your own imagination as to how that, that tech will advance if, if it it's proven to work in humans.
0: Man, that's, that's just mind-blowing. That is... I mean, yeah, it leaves you speechless that um, yeah. that kind of stuff is already here. Like that isn't, yeah. that's not sci-fi. That isn't 10, 15, 20 years down the line. That's happening.
1: Yeah, it's cool. And it was, it, I guess it was sci-fi three years ago. And, you know, we all know how exponentially technology, technology progresses these days. And, you know, even just like the just like the, uh, the internet, you think about things like the internet in the 90s. You can never imagine how it would evolve because you couldn't imagine the iPhone. And it's not until you see the iPhone that you, you can then see the applications for the internet. And there's always there's always a second device or a second discovery that amplifies a, a primary discovery that's impossible to imagine until it arrives that just takes it to the next level. And, you know, we 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 often use the um, the right Brothers analogy here at Life Biosciences. The reason being, as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, their first flight was December 1903, and before that first flight, the number of engineers focusing on aviation was probably 15 to 20 because the idea of man flying was crazy. And when they had their first flight, it didn't take mankind five years to socialise the idea of flight being possible. They, there was instant acceptance. Yesterday it wasn't possible. Today it's possible. It was that quick. Um, and then the number of engineers focusing on aviation, I imagine, would have gone from 20 to, to 10,000 because, you know, the idea of man flying is is, is cool. I guess it would have been the most interesting thing happening back then. And you seen the same thing in, in aging. You know, there's only really 20 people in the world who are good at this stuff because it, it involved a career of studying yeast cells. But now that we've had our first flight, so to speak, I think you, the number of bright young minds coming out of the world's leading universities studying aging is just going to go through the roof. Because I mean, what's more interesting than reversing human age?
0: Nothing. Bitcoin. Excuse me. <laughs> 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 I got you. You said nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. uh, uh, so what else? What else can you tell us? Like you know, um, is there are there supplements on the market at, at the moment which people can start looking into and taking? Um, people are going down the route of um, you know different dieting and um, different um, exercises and cryogenic and uh, you know cold exposure, heat exposure, all of this kind of stuff. Um, all very well documented. Um, you know, works with some people. It's like anything, right? Um, you know, you got to find what works for you and your body and your time and you know, whatever else. But the fact that someone's doing something about it in the first place is a huge step. How we yeah. away from finding something over the counter supplement wise? I, I use air quotes supplement wise. I, I don't want to, uh, yeah, I I don't know the tech, um, terminology that you guys would use, um, where this kind of tech you, we can ingest it and it's going to start to use your analogy or David's analogy, scrubbing our um, CD discs cleaner over time.
1: We, we 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 can't do that yet. There's nothing you can take. This is this is genetic engineering. This is this is uh, reprogramming. Genetic reprogramming. So that that is not something a pill you can just take um at least it isn't yet but there are bridges we can build to make sure we're still around when this text available i mean i don't know if it'll be available in 10 years 20 years 30 years 40 years i mean it's got to be less than 50 years um i mean we we can reverse the age of part of a mammal today like that's that's worth pausing and thinking about we can reverse the age of part of a mammal today so i guess you make your own assumption how long it's going to take to work this out for a whole human but yes it's obviously more than five years but you know you, there are bridges we can build to make sure we're still around when that tech does come. Um, the most important one, and I know people no going to be disappointed to hear this, but it's diet and exercise. I mean, diet and exercise activates longevity pathways. You know, calorie restriction activates longevity pathways. We have um, NAD raising precursors that we give to our animals, and these aged animals behave like younger animals. It, it restores their Cardiovascular, restores their memory, restores their circulation, and they perform much better than their age cohorts who aren't on these NAD raising precursors. But when we exercise them with the NAD raising precursors, it's like one plus one equals four. If you just diet and exercise and you do that well, you live a longer, healthier life, typically. If you just take NAD raising precursors, you should live a longer, healthier life. If you do both together, it amplifies.
0: Um, well, you know, just, just so I'm, I'm a bit in the dark, with the-
1: so so it's it's the fuel that your cert one gene needs to function. Your cert one is the gene that keeps your DNA tightly coiled. And as you age, say, from your mid-30s onwards, your SIRT1, the NAD in your SIRT1 gene starts to deplete and it doesn't get restored. And it slowly depletes. And as it slowly depletes, cert one less effective. And as cert one less effective, your DNA starts to uncoil. And so these tightly coiled strands of DNA start to loosen, and as they loosen, they start to malfunction and mutate and create cancers and other other aging conditions. Um, But by restoring the NAD levels in animals cert one it retightens their DNA, and it gives them a lot of useful function. Um, Most most notable, cardiovascular and memory, blood flow. Um, They become more cancer resistant as well. I guess you think about it in terms of armor, you know, young people have armor. They have tightly, tightly called DNA. They have not many senescent cells and it's hard for age disease to take hold. Um, and as you age, you, you develop more senescent cells, your DNA starts to unravel and you become more susceptible to, to aging diseases as, you're, as you get chinks in that armor. But if you could, if an old person could wear a young person's armor, in theory, they shouldn't get any of the diseases young people don't get. And I guess that's the way to think about it. You know, it's it's only diseases that young people don't get that we're talking about. The diseases that young people do get we can't help it. That's a completely different area.
0: Right. So if we are still around then you and I, Tristan in like uh, 30, 40 years and this, this tech starts coming in, like how, how long do you think, I mean, is there, is there an end point? Like if, if you, if this works the way that you guys at life bio think it could work and like <laughs> <laughs> look, I, I, I'm not a scientist so
1: and I, I can say whatever I want I suppose because my opinion doesn't really matter because I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> but uh, I, look if you, can, if you can keep the genome undamaged and remains undamaged and you keep removing damage as it occurs well I mean what's the end point? I can't see what it might be I guess it's, it's skiing into a tree um <laughs> but you know I mean that's that's the that's theory and, and and I don't know how long that how far that is away if at all is even possible but I mean the theory makes sense to me
0: man that's amazing so there's there's one thing I want to talk to you about red wine and chocolate to give yeah give people, Two my favorite things yeah dark chocolate dark chocolate right let's let's give yeah. the people a lot of hope here because um yeah um diet and exercise, and if that diet can include red wine and dark chocolate, then uh, I'm all in. But um, obviously there's some science behind it.
1: There is, and this is also an area that David Sinclair um, was, was one, of the, one of the leaders in. Um, resveratrol is, I guess if, if NAD, raising precursors, are the, are the fuel, then resveratrol is the accelerant. Uh, and they go very well together. And you can buy resveratrol on Amazon. I mean, it doesn't cost much at all. What was um, <laughs> Resveratrol.
0: Resveratrol, right, okay.
1: Correct. And if you are buying it um, in capsules, it's like brick dust. It's hard to consume, but it, it it needs some sort of soluble to be taken up by the body properly. So if, if you're just taking two pills a day, I don't think it's going to do a lot for you. I think really what you need to be doing is, breaking those capsules open and sprinkling it onto some yogurt or something so that um, the, the fat can absorb it and it can get into your body. It's not terribly tasty. Um, you know, I put two t- capsules into my yogurt and a bit of fruit in the morning um, and I just, I just punch through it in a fairly unpleasant way. It's not that bad, but it's not that enjoyable either. Um, but, you know, that, that's a chimney thing that anyone can get their hands on. Um, and it saves you drinking, well, I think you probably need to drink 500 bottles of red wine a day to get the same effect. So I wouldn't recommend you do that. And It's probably similar to chocolate. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I mean that's something people do right now. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of well, I, I should care what I say because, because there's a lot of things here that haven't been tested properly, and I wouldn't want to um, give advice or not qualify to give any give that sort of advice. But but resveratrol, res- resveratrol is a natural product; it's it's a plant. I mean, it's, that's 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 pretty safe, I think. Right. and David, it, David, David talks about other things in his book that, that go, go well with, with the Reservoir Troll. And if I think people are interested, they, they should read his book to find out rather than listen to a non-scientist, uh, you know, shit from the hip. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but th- this this stuff is like, that is over the counter right now. People are able to find that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Man. So okay. going back to your analogy, like, um, you know, the Wright brothers, how far away are you from seeing a, a huge deluge into this space, into your space, which is going to be the the next kind of hype cycle of, you know, like uh, innovation and you know, fast forwarding your protection of thirty to fifty years? In terms of investor interest, was that the question, Dan? Inve- no, like um, like a, a competitive interest, like other companies and other scientists. Oh, you sure you're already seeing it i mean
1: you know there's a lot of uh when i say a lot you know that there's you know 20 or so exceptional scientists like david working this and have been for a very long time um just maybe another four or five companies that are are credible in this space and there's probably another four or five that are new trying to trying to i guess find a path um it's there's plenty of room for everyone to operate in i mean all boats will rise together i think in, in longevity i guess the hardest thing is historically there's been a lot of snake oil being sold around the longevity field. And when I say historically, I mean, you know, going back to 2000 years probably. Um, so, you know, and there will probably still see a bit of that as people just try and jump on the bandwagon of, of, of trying to make quick, easy cash with supplements that have really no efficacy. Um, but that's happening less and less and, and, and proper science is happening more and more. And you, there's a lot of credible groups now with some very smart people and some very smart money. Um, uh, pushing these fields and I think, uh, you know, just in the last three years alone, the space has changed so much. I mean, the whole optic nerve crush reprogram cells beyond again wasn't a thing when I started doing with David in 2016. Like that, that was, in my mind, still science fiction. I, I, I was hopeful that it would come in my lifetime. I didn't think it would come in three years.
0: Um, so it's going to be exciting to see where we are in three years from now. Yeah, man. I mean, I would love to – I'm not going to ask you for any predictions because goodness knows where this thing might take us. Uh, and I know that you, um, like I said before, there's, there's only so much that you can talk about. Um, so much of it is mind blowing that, uh, you know, it just gives me a lot of hope that I'll be on this planet way longer than, than, than I ever expected. Um, I think, you know, what am I now? Like 44 and you know, I'm a hundred bid, no lid, right? That's, (laughs) that's the way I'm looking at it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I like that phrase. Um, yeah. I mean, look, we're going to use our resources
1: much better. And that's a whole other conversation around climate change and um, the environment and consumption, materialism. Um, one of the pushbacks I often get from people when they hear about what we're doing is you, you, you're making a problem that's already bad a lot worse through over- overpopulation. Um, and look, there is something to that, but I mean, we could fit today's population using New York's density, New York City's density, into the state of Texas. So there's plenty of space for everybody. It's just a question of how we use our resources. Um, but you know, at some point that will be a problem. If we, I'm assuming we'll learn how to use our resources pretty quickly. Either we'll work it out, or Mother Nature will find a way. I mean, COVID's already shown us what happens if you, you know, disregard the planet and and don't take care of things properly. Um, you know, we've had plenty of examples in history where. we've gone too quickly and and nature's kind of clipped our wings a bit and curved us back again. Um, so, you know, this, this could fast forward a a real need to address climate change and the way we use our resources and the way we treat our planet, um, which I think is a good thing. Um, I mean, removing age disease would would be amazing. That affects everybody. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of ethical areas to, to consider. It's a hard narrative to get right. Um, I think it's very important that we keep the focus on health span and, and in improving health span, increasing health span, making humans healthier. And and as a secondary outcome, they're living longer, but in a healthy way. Um, I think we keep the focus on, on removing age disease and keeping humans healthy. You know, like that's a narrative you can't get too wrong. And I think everyone should be able to get behind that. And you know, from that base, people will start accepting the changes that are coming and, and getting their heads around the changes that are coming. And I think you know we still have plenty of time until these changes are here to kind of plan and debate and discuss you know how these things should be regulated or or um you know you know used but yeah it's 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 coming regardless so it's it's a fascinating area
0: to be thinking about and I think like the right at the beginning you said the difference between six span and health span and I think that's something that um like I really like to like make really crystal clear like what what you said was when we eat, after penicillin, we, we elongated life, um, 40 extra years, whatever. But 20 of those years was just literally six band. Mm. Right. No, one's going right. to on surely if we can, if we can half the amount of six band, like, you know, th- there can't be too. We'll do more than half we'll, it. We'll, we'll compress it down to, and it's nothing.
1: We'll just have mitochondrial exhaustion at the end, healthy, healthy, healthy body stops. Wow! Like we have that tech now. Like that's that's that should be out. You know, this decade, yeah, five five or so years, we have this this stuff coming through the FDA.
0: That alone, like, who would push back on that? Like, no one wants to be sick for the last twenty years of their life, right? <laughs> right, right. Again,
1: I think it's I think it's really how you take people down the journey. You know, and this is why it's important to it's important to us at least to be the custodians of this narrative because it is such a, a tricky one to navigate and it's such an easy one to get wrong and you don't want to give people the wrong idea around just old people living longer for the sake of living and, and living in, in, in poor health and bad, with bad quality of life. You know, it's it's such a new area for a lot people. That they, they, they find it hard to think about the implications. They find it hard to think about the changes and often just think about the status quo that they're used to and they just put a longer lens on that and that, that sounds horrific to, to me as well. Um, so I think really a big part of it is just gentle education of the changes that are coming and, and taking people on the journey in in a way that's not frightening or it's too unfamiliar.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. I usually end like um, each show when they're Bitcoin related with uh, a a question along the lines of, um, we call it, um, (laughs) it's a good analogy. We call it in the space, um, you know, red pilling someone. It's uh, it's a matrix kind of. uh, Yeah, yeah, I get, I, I get the reference but okay. Um, but with you guys, I guess, um, I'm not going to ask you if you could red pill someone about Bitcoin, if you could red pill someone about aging and, um, you know, what, what you guys are doing and to help someone understand like the importance of this work, you know, who would you give that pill to? Who would you give that person that who, what, which person would you give that pill to and why? (laughs) Cool. Interesting question.
1: Um, Yeah, it's an interesting question. I guess it would be either – can I give you a few answers? I'm going to give you a few answers. Absolutely. I guess it would be, be either um, the CEO or, or chairperson of one of the largest pharma companies, top 10 pharma companies, or uh, you the know, head of an FDA, TGA-type group, or um, the you know incumbent government of one of the major uh, powers – the world so that they could then use their, I guess, their platform to readily and accurately uh, advocate for what we're doing and, and push it in a factual way that isn't biased with lobby groups and isn't biased with self-interest and it, it really is just just speaking the truth about where we are and where we're going.
0: And do you get much like um, FUD um, from the media on on this kind of stuff when, when something's published, uh, if you go public with something, like, you know, what's the is that deep on then media is is hell um yeah
1: we we've we've tried to stay away from the media as as much as possible we, we've we've had a few um interviews with with some journalists that have been largely constructive you know friendly dialogues um we had one that that wasn't so bad it wasn't that bad but wasn't wasn't i guess it was just trying to look controversial but um which is fine um I think I think it's the, the tests are really going to come when we really start impacting people's health span and we really start treating ageing aging, aging um, upstream at the cause level. And then when we start doing that, that's going to get a lot more mainstream attention and a lot more critics are going to come out of the woodwork um, with various agendas and, and maybe some without any agendas, just, just lack of knowledge and maybe just uncertainty. And, you know, again, this is why it's so important to, to be engaging with all these different interest groups and making sure that they are part of this journey and they do... See these changes, A is inevitable, and B is positive things if, if, if done correctly. um You know, this is stuff we really care about. And we want to get it right, and we want to make sure this is this is a long duration journey that, that gets done correctly.
0: Cool, man. Well, if anyone's listening that might be um, interested in, in reaching out to you, um, are you are you actively you know looking for funders at the moment? Are you? Um
1: Look, we're a biotech company. There's 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 no better way to burn cash than to run a biotech company. We're always looking for money, so <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so where can people come out, uh, come and you know, reach uh, reach out to you, learn more about? Uh... Well,
1: you know, I'll just answer that question a little differently because I don't want to I don't want to be too self serving. But um, if people are interested in learning more about longevity, our website does create quite a, quite a good job of kind of explaining who we are, our mission, our team, what we're up to, um, you know talks about the ways that you grow old and, and how science can can have an impact on those on those areas uh, and our website is just lifebiosciences.com
0: perfect well like i said um it's been great learning about this um really really exciting um to be exposed to it and to get to know you mate uh, really appreciate your time uh, is there anything else that um that you might have missed that uh, you you'd, you'd like to address before uh, before we sign off
1: uh, there isn't Dan from longevity side, but I did have a couple of crypto questions for you. If you've got time, <laughs> I don't, I don't have my, I don't have hey. my, my nine year old here with me, unfortunately <laughs> to ask the first one, but,
0: <laughs> Problem. um, Problem. But, but first of all, Bitcoin questions.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I don't have a Bitcoin question. I have a cryptocurrency question.
0: Ah, okay. Let's well,
1: it, it, It's more curiosity than anything else. I mean, I've been looking at, um, I did look at, um, you know, utility coins as a way of raising money at one point, and it struck me as quite unique in that it's neither debt nor equity. And so where are these guys sit on the cap table, I mean, they don't sit anywhere. And I guess there's there's not really much case law yet to kind of challenge whether people who are buying utility coins are buying debt or buying equity or none of the above. Um, you must have some thoughts on how this is going to play out, I and mean, there must be more reg- regulation. But in terms of companies, that are very safe. $500 million of, of utility coin. Are they going to get bitten until to come, come back and make equity claims one day or debt claims one day?
0: They're, they're not going to be around to be claimed on, mate. They're, they're just going to be gone and they're going to take your money and it's it's just all scam. All of these right. cos and all of these tokens and all of these utilities, it's now being called DeFi, um, D-E-F-I, which um, is short for DeFinance, um, where they're right. coming out and saying, Loan us your Bitcoin, and we will, um, you know, we'll give you six to fifteen percent um, cash back on that. And um, you yeah, know, don't worry about it. We'll we'll keep that safe. And you know, once um, once you're finished with the fiat currency, you can just come back, and we'll give you your Bitcoin back. Then, no,
1: so, it's, so it's kind of like it's kind of like sports selling inventory, but not being around
0: to provide the inventory. It, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's um, okay. it's it's not. It's never like they call it tokenomics right and things like that um basically you you want to steer clear of raising money that way and you want to steer- yeah no yeah. That, that's an inclusion i came to as well pretty quickly <laughs> and you want to steer <laughs> of any companies that are raising money that way or any tokens that um are being pushed to you um also been clear i came to pretty quickly
1: good. um well dan I, ha- I have got i have got a i have got a bitcoin question for you as well i think this kind of could tie quite nicely into what we're doing here at life biosciences mm-hmm. um one of the things that fascinates me about Bitcoin is, you know, it's borderless. It has no central bank that controls it, which is, you know, obviously hasn't been done before with, with the fiat currency. Um, it has a bunch of implications around, you know, central bank intervention or lack thereof, etc. et cetera. Um, how, And you mentioned before about, you know, people in the Bitcoin space being very time sensitive and gets time aware. How do you think borderless currency that has no central bank intervention, you know, the freedoms it provides, how, that, how important is that going to be if we move into a world where people are living longer, healthier lives? And um, I guess consider this, you know, a human can – typically a human would have three stages. They go through school and be educated to some degree that then have a, a workforce element to their life, which would be another, the second third of their life, and then they have a, a retirement element where they retire and hopefully enjoy not working for, for the last third of their life. And we've seen society push into that retirement age more and more as people have to work longer. Uh, you know, because everything's been nationalized and people lost their savings, et cetera. Um, but now we're going into this, into this new paradigm where humans might have two cycles or three cycles where they go to university or, or high school and they choose a career, they work for 30 years, have a family, then they go back to school and they ret- retrain, completely different fields, and then they have another 30 years in the workforce and a second family, and then maybe they have a retirement. That seems to be the sort of thing that um, Bitcoin would be w- well suited for in terms of enabling.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, I'm not sure how far down the rabbit hole you are. Um, were, were you were you aware of like uh, the Bitcoin issuance as well? The uh, the hard cap on the amount that will yes, up? right? Okay. Yes. So
1: it's like four years left of mining or something, right? Is that right?
0: Uh, no, the, the the last coin will be mined in around 2140. Um, but um, oh, okay. there's a cycle each four years, so that's that's exactly um, right. It, and it's, some people will argue as well that there's 21 million only ever going to be mined. We currently stand at almost anywhere between 18.5 and 19 million are in um, circulation, are out, and um, you know available uh, for for people to interact with. Um, and some people estimate like three million coins minimum are going to be let uh, have been or will be lost. Um, so vis-a-vis, are we you know kind of at this this hard ceiling already, but you know that aside, that's a whole different rabbit hole. Um, so to to your point with uh, this this long, longevity thing, you know many people in the Bitcoin space believe um, that it's going to be inevitable at some point over the next. I mean, decades, obviously, uh, you're, not gonna, you're not going to kill every fiat currency, but th- there's going to become like a, a new, uh, well, if you read the DNM's book, uh, The Bitcoin Standard, um, many people believe there's going to be a death of a lot of fiat currencies and Bitcoin will become the dominant currency and the game theory within Bitcoin will play out. And first of all, we've seen it already, huge hedge funds are moving in. Um, MicroStrategy uh, announced uh, three, or four weeks ago that they've taken 50% of their free cash flow. That was 21,500 Bitcoins, $250 million worth. A company now holds on its balance sheet, a you know, publicly listed company. And now it's only that game theory is going to start playing out. Other companies are going to start doing the same thing. Um, it's only a matter of time before sovereign wealth funds and in governments, start moving into this. Mm. And right. if that becomes the thing, and that can just be a huge net benefit for, for humanity um, because the whole, as we were talking about before, like the whole time preference changes, and it lowers your time preference, and it defers consumption. Because prices will be deflationary, so you'll put off a purchase. You won't. You won't go out and buy yourself a brand new car tomorrow because you'll know deflationary um, uh, pressures will make that car cheaper next year, and that will be across everything. And so, this will take back um, our time, and we'll be able to choose more um, rewarding work and uh, for less hours and concentrate more on health and concentrate more on the things that um you know you guys are doing and invest in things more like that um so there there is a huge connection here between what you guys are doing and what's going on um mm. in this parallel financial system and i'm i think i've yeah. heard a fair amount there i i hope i've kind of answered a question yeah
1: no, no you have it's, it it's it's fascinating i've heard you talk about stuff at high level before but haven't really thought about the intersect between um, Bitcoin and, and time preferences and, and humans living longer, healthier with, with more than one cycle to their, to their, to their lifespan. It is a cool matchup.
0: There's a few episodes I'll, I'll send over to you. Um, one with Jeff Booth, who's the author of the, uh, the price of tomorrow that talks about um, how deflation and technology is going to drive inflate uh, deflation across, um, you know, all of uh, all of the sectors and, that's going to look ugly, man. You know, we, we're in for an ugly five to ten year period. We all know that, right? Um, you can't, you can't just keep printing cash and you know, paper. Sure. Open, you know what happened in two thousand eight when we go back to that. Um, it, we're like you—you you called it the the 08, 9 hangover. I think you you said. I mean, we're, we're still suffering from it, and uh, it's still, yeah. you know, we're still kicking that can down the road with the same tactics. Um, yeah. And um I'll send across um the the interview I did with um Saifuddin um and that is like uh, all about time preference that, that particular episode and uh, that yeah, cool understandable great that. thanks no problem at all man well it's been great thank you mate I uh, really appreciate you coming on and um yeah anytime look forward to hearing any updates that you're you know the next time you're allowed to release an update can you ping me a text
1: (laughs) we could have one interesting update coming out in a couple of months actually so yeah i will do that
0: excellent appreciate it mate take care and
1: dan thanks very much mate. i really enjoyed it it's been
0: a lot of fun well it's great to have you on your first podcast
1: yeah thanks a lot thanks again (laughs) hope you have another one soon cheers mate
0: Hey guys, thank you for listening and thanks to Tristan for coming on and sharing all of that incredible incredible information. Uh, this was uh, Tristan's first ever appearance on any kind of podcast. He certainly had some nerves coming in, didn't really know how he was going to add any kind of value to, to our community. Uh, I had to tell him that... As a community we are very very much interested in longevity and how Bitcoin has changed a lot of our thinking and a lot of our mindsets and low time preference and looking after ourselves, eating healthier, eating differently, making better life choices, looking at the future with a much brighter hope than we would have done possibly five, six, seven, eight years ago or even a month ago if you're brand new to Bitcoin hitting the gym, getting healthy, all of this kind of stuff that comes from sound money. Fix the money, fix the world. How many times do we have to say it? If you've got that savings technology behind you, so many of life's anxieties and woes start melting away. You find more time, you find yourself, you find the things you're interested in, and you have a much... Bigger appreciation of life. And this is where companies like Tristans are coming in with these longevity plays. The, the technology behind what they're trying to achieve is mind blowing. And I think if you're here, you, if I, I don't know, from Gen X down, 100 bid. No lid, like like Tristan said. Unless you ski into a tree, you, you make some some basic life choices, which many of us already are: health, food, exercise, mental health, and then keep a very very close eye on the the the, the huge strides and advances being made in the longevity space, and taking a keen interest in that. See in 100 years guys, let's let's really see bitcoin play out and get to the moon. Very very exciting. So, Tristan, thanks again for coming on and, and sharing your experience and all of your knowledge. I will uh, I will close out with the usual thank yous to everybody that's listening, sharing, retweeting, commenting, sharing the banter, coming out the woodwork, joining the force, trying to push education forward. Altcoins need influencers. Bitcoin has educators. Become an educator. I know you're there. I know you've got something to say. I know you're you're itching. Bring it out. Let's go. We're ready for you. Let's buckle down for the bull run. Start stacking. If you're in the US, swanbitcoin.com forward slash once bitten. They have you covered. If you're in the UK, www.coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Go check in with at Obi and the gang. If you are anywhere around the world, go check out at Friar Hass on Twitter. That's Friar, F-R-I-A-R, Hass H-A-S-S. I have a whole interview with him completely centered on DCA, dollar cost averaging, or fiat cost averaging, it should be renamed, where he will help you understand the power of small buys, on a regular basis and he has a whole list of the different companies around the world that are offering these services take care guys thanks for listening thanks for sharing really look forward to the next show